This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for Khalil Ekulona. Mass shootings are all too common in the United States, and they are always tragic. Every time news breaks of the next mass tragedy, our attention turns, of course, to those killed or wounded. But the undercurrent of East mass shooting are these smaller, ongoing incidents of gun violence that plague our communities all across this country, including right here in Nashville. Now, we can't talk about gun violence without talking about gun laws. Last year, there was a pretty high-profile change to Tennessee's gun restrictions. Basically, it says that if you meet the legal guidelines for buying a handgun, you don't necessarily need to bother getting a permit to carry one. But is it really that simple? WPLN's Damon Mitchell has been taking a closer look at the finer points of our state's gun laws, and his reporting shows that things are actually a little more nuanced and complicated than you might realize. Damon, welcome to the show. Hey, Nina. All right, let's get to it. I want to start by talking about the laws around purchasing guns. Mm -hmm. How old do you have to be to legally walk into a store and buy a handgun in uh, Tennessee? You need to be at least 21 years old. And what if you're not going to a store, but you're buying from your neighbor at a gun show? Um, so for that, um, it's a lot different. You can be at least 18 um, to purchase a handgun if that person is a, uh, a resident of Tennessee. And the rules are also different for kind of, uh, like if you walk into a store and you're 21 and you want to purchase a handgun, you're going to have to do a background check. Um, if you buy one from a neighbor and you're 18, it's more of a honor system where if you know that you aren't eligible to purchase a gun, you're not supposed to do it. And if that person knows that you can't legally have a gun, they're not supposed to sell it to you. So it's already kind of like a flow chart. If this, then that. Um, Correct. All right. So if you yep. bought a gun with the new law, you don't necessarily need a permit, but carry permits for handguns are still available from the state. Why would someone opt to get one? Uh, so Tennessee has a couple of different types of permits. The uh, What I would say is the strongest permits is called the enhanced carry permit. And that requires um, some range training and some classroom training. And that permit is recognized by more states in the U.S. I'll, I'll say, I could say most states in the U.S. So with your Tennessee enhanced permit, you can go to most other U.S. states and still carry your handgun. Um, it's also kind of like a... The, the gun experts that I've talked to is they're almost like, why not? Um, why not get the training? Why not have the, like this extra piece of uh, like a credential that you can sell to a law enforcement officer? Um, if they ask, even though you can carry without a permit, it's just kind of a good thing just to have. And then are there situations within the state where whether or not you bothered to get the permit is going to change where you can be and where you can have that gun? Yeah. So I, I said the most kind of obvious things is, is public parks. Uh, if you have an uh, enhanced carry permit or a handgun permit in Tennessee, you can carry at a public park as long as like there's no school activities, things like that. And if someone knows that you have a weapon and they ask you to leave, you do have to leave. Uh, with permitless carry, it's not, you can still be arrested if you're at a public park uh, and you're saying, hey, I'm carrying under the state's permitless carry law, but you don't have a, a permit. So there's a lot of <laughs> the flow chart continues, I guess. Now that's that's handguns. Yep. So another set of that flow chart, you know, let's go off to the other side. 
and think about another kind of firearm. Are the rules the same for rifles? No, they're a lot different. Um, I'd say even like a lot more strict, but also less strict in some cases. Like, um, so I have to be at least 21 to walk into a, a, a gun store that's a federally licensed dealer to buy a handgun. But I only need to be 18 to walk into a store to buy a, a long gun, which is um, a shotgun or a rifle. Um, but it's also different in the sense is that you can't walk around Tennessee just like with a, rifle, a loaded rifle. Um, that's actually illegal in Tennessee. And even... You, you could with a handgun. Right. But not a rifle. Correct. Okay. And then what were you about to say? And that's even if, like, say, I don't know, some people like to make statements sometimes. If I want to make a statement and say, hey, um, I'm going to walk around with my rifle unloaded. Um, there's nothing in a magazine or nothing in the chamber, but I have ammunition in my pocket. By Tennessee definition, that's still considered a loaded long gun. All right. What about fully automatic weapons? Um, so Tennessee sticks fairly close to the federal law when it comes to, um, guns in general and especially, um, kind of long guns, rifles and shotguns. So you are allowed to have fully automatic weapons, uh, long, fully automatic weapons, long guns in Tennessee. Uh, but the process of getting them is a lot harder. So, um, they cost, it could cost up to maybe tens of thousands of dollars. Um, you also have to do a background check, fingerprinting, things like that. Um, and when I say a background check, it's not something that you just like, they run and then you get approved right away. It can take up to a year um, to get approved to purchase that uh, fully automatic weapon. And then you also have to notify the local law enforcement uh, agency where you live that you actually have that weapon. So it sounds like... That, this flowchart's getting very complicated, yeah. <laughs> basically. It's very different depending on where you're buying, what you're buying, what kind of gun, where you can carry it, what kind of permit you have, where exactly you can go. It's it's a, yeah. it's a pretty big labyrinth, it sounds yeah. like. And even to add to that, the, the fully automatic weapons that are illegal, um, they also have to be made before, I want to say, 1986. Um, so it, it's just like a lot of layers and layers as far as just gun laws in general in Tennessee. Now, you spoke to a Tennessee firearms instructor, Leroy Ferris, about what kinds of records are kept on gun sales in the state. Let's listen. Tennessee doesn't register guns, uh, and I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but that's that's the law here. But, but for every legal purchase through a firearms uh, dealer, you know, there is a records check of the person, so there is some validity of this person has not committed crimes and, and hasn't done things that would prohibit them from owning guns. Okay, so as Leroy said, all purchases through a licensed firearms dealer involve a background check. Are there any loopholes there? Yep, so that kind of goes back to the, you can be eight, at least 18 and still purchase a firearm. So if I have a firearm and you want it and you're 18 and I'm your neighbor and I live in Tennessee, um, I can sell you that firearm and I don't, I don't like have to run your ID through like any type of database um, or anything like that. As you have been reporting on this, has anything surprised you about Tennessee's gun laws? 
I'd say just the open carry laws in general. I, I think Tennessee, for the most part, is considered a gun-friendly state. Um, so I was kind of surprised when I found out that you like couldn't have a loaded long gun just walking around. Um, in some states, you can do that. So um, that did kind of shock me. Well, that's WPLN reporter Damon Mitchell. Damon, thanks for that explainer. Thanks, Nina. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll consider how these laws are impacting the people of Tennessee. Do you own a gun? Why or why not? Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. There are all sorts of firearms you can legally own in Tennessee. As we were hearing, semi-automatic weapons are among the most common and convenient guns to purchase here. So who is purchasing and bearing arms? And what happens when the state decides you're one of the folks who shouldn't have that right? John Harris runs the Tennessee Firearms Association, a guns rights organization. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, how about how many people in this state own firearms? That's a difficult question because there is no database of gun owners in Tennessee. What we know is there's about 740,000, last time I looked, that have qualified for handgun permits uh, or one of the two handgun permits that are available. Uh, so that's about 11 to 12% of the population and a higher percentage of the eligible population. But with 7 million roughly citizens in the state, uh, we don't know of that number how many actually are firearms owners or possessors. So you mentioned how many have permits. Is that really the the one kind of place you can go to get actual numbers? That's one place you can go. The other data source is since 1998, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation has had the responsibility to do the background checks in situations where someone goes in and does a retail purchase of a firearm from a federally licensed dealer. And um, and so TBI maintains data on their website that will tell you how many retail sales there have been annually. Uh, that data doesn't tell you how many distinct individuals that involves, just the number of firearms and transactions. And so, for example, in 2020, the TBI data showed that the number of transactions, number of firearms purchased in the state was over 800,000. And in 2021, it was a little under 800,000. Well, now we're also a year into the law that lifts the need for a permit in some situations. That's made it easier to carry certain guns. But do we know how that has affected gun ownership? I think that it had, well, we do know this, that the volume of handgun permits being issued uh, initially dropped off with the adoption of that permitless carry law. Uh, but I think it's picking back up because people who uh, start carrying a firearm realize that the vast number of problems with the permitless carry law that was adopted in 2021 
And so they're going back and getting the uh, the handgun permit. So we're seeing, we saw a brief drop off in the number of permits, but that trend is picking back up as people realize the benefits of having the permit in Tennessee and also for reciprocity purposes. Well, and we just got a tweet at This Is Nashville from a listener who goes by Professor 615. He says, I have a lifetime permit, rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's a it's a common sentiment. Uh, the lifetime permit is actually a version of what Tennessee calls the enhanced permit, which is the one that we've had essentially since May of 1994. And it's the one that allows open or concealed carry It allows of a handgun. Uh, it allows the greatest number of states um, to, to extend reciprocity to those individuals. And it has the greatest number of um, situations where someone with a permit is eligible to carry uh, compared to the concealed only permit or the uh, permitless carry law from last year. Do you think the average gun owner understands the laws about where they can and can't take their firearm, especially if they do or don't have a permit? Well, you know, as a, in addition to serving as the executive director for the state association now for uh, almost 28 years, I'm also a practicing attorney in Nashville. And my opinion is uh, the perception of the average person on the street of what the gun laws are in Tennessee is vastly different, as your prior guest was explaining, than what the laws actually are in Tennessee. And it's not just the average citizen. I would say that delusion and disparity between reality and what the laws actually are is uh, something that impacts our legislators, uh, many in law enforcement, uh, many district attorneys and judges, and, uh, and clearly our governor. Well, the Constitution protects the right to bear arms, but under certain circumstances, people can lose that right. Our next guest sees a number of cases where that happens through her work with Nashville's Office of Family Safety. Becky Bullard, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. In your work, you interact with people experiencing domestic violence on a daily basis. What role do guns play in these cases? Yeah, so domestic violence and guns are an incredibly deadly combination. So we see just with the mere presence of a gun in the home where abuse is occurring, that gun increases the likelihood that that abuser will murder their victim and potentially the family and others by five times or 500%. So, I mean, you're saying just the mere presence of a gun, that seems to affect the likelihood that domestic violence will turn deadly. Absolutely. And if that gun has already been employed by that abuser for threats and coercion and even harm, that then increases the likelihood of murder another 20 times. So the existence of guns and domestic violence together, again, they're an incredibly deadly combination. How does the court decide to take away the right to have a gun in these situations? So Tennessee law mirrors the federal law. And what both laws give us is a guideline for when guns need to be removed from these dangerous situations. So when an individual has been convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor, they can no longer own or possess a firearm for the rest of their life. And that's both under Tennessee state law and the federal law. 
We also prohibit individuals who have an active order of protection against them. And that isn't forever. It's for the duration of the order of protection that they cannot have a firearm as well. And, you know, that kind of restriction goes beyond something like a a very basic restraining order that aims to protect somebody from an abuser by ordering the abuser to stay away, which is the way I think most people think of these. Why is it important to make sure these abusers just flat out don't have a gun in any situation? Right. Well, really because of what we know about how firearms are utilized by abusers and because they are the predominant means by which abusers are killing or harming severely their victims. So because of the high risk that they pose, not only to the victim themselves, but also to the rest of their family, to law enforcement that are responding to these calls, domestic violence calls are far and away the most dangerous calls that law enforcement respond to on a daily basis. And we see law enforcement officers killed across the country on a daily rate with their response to domestic violence calls while they're serving orders of protection. And then we also see domestic violence abuse spill out into the community. So we know now, it's something we've certainly known in our field for many years, but we hear more and more about the connection between mass violence incidents and abusive histories. And so these are not contained to one person. They spill out into the community and can continue to have ripple effects for harm. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying these are the people who are more likely to be an actor in a mass violence situation. Absolutely. When you're looking at the perpetrators of mass violence, the majority of those perpetrators have histories of abuse. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. We're talking about this hour about guns and who has them in Tennessee. My guests are Becky Bullard from the Office of Family Safety and John Harris of the Tennessee Firearms Association. And I'd like to hear from both of you. What kind of impact do you think it has on quality of life and safety when so many people have firearms? John? Well, the the decision, I mean, as a practical matter, lots of people have have and always have had firearms ownership in Tennessee. We do see, I think, some increase in the number of people based upon what TBI data indicated over the last two years with potential new firearms purchasers. But I think it's a choice people are making that they want to be able to provide for their own protection, self-defense, and, and potentially even protection of their homes uh, that is is facilitating the increase in the number of owners. So in general, I would say those who have decided that they want access to firearms for either recreational purposes or self-defense, it's a uh, it's a good thing that they're available in Tennessee with relatively few hurdles. So to you, I, I am I correct in hearing you saying to you, that means that more people are safe? It means that more people have the capacity to rely upon a firearm if they choose to for their own protection. And and that does, in some instances, you know, depending on how you view the data, yield the conclusion that um, they're able to deter a personal attack, a violent attack, uh, sort of like what we saw with the young man, uh, Mr. Dickin, in the recent mall shooting uh, or the church shooting down in Texas a year ago or even the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Well, Becky, what do you think? So I think that when you're looking at more guns and more homes, 
we see studies that show a correlation between the increase in gun ownership in a state that goes up equally with the increase in the rate by which women are murdered. And so if we think about that increase of more guns and more homes, and some of those homes will be homes in which abuse is already occurring, that then brings us into that high-risk situation where now this gun is available, it's easily accessible, and it's an efficient and quick means to a murder or to terrorizing that individual. Someone who goes by Abstract Black on Twitter says, quote, I don't own a gun because I'm more likely to die or be injured by a gun I own and have enough accidents in my life. I would hate to have an irreversible accident with a firearm. I also know that most gun crimes are suicides, and I don't need that option for me. That's the end of the quote. Keep those tweets coming in at This Is Nashville. John, do you have any response to that? Well, that's a choice everybody has the opportunity to make. And if they don't feel comfortable owning or possessing a firearm, then it's probably the right choice for them not to do so. But you can't necessarily draw the conclusion across the board that firearms possession, firearms ownership yields increased personal risk because there are just so many people over the last 28 years that have started exercising the ability and the capacity to purchase and carry firearms for self-defense. And, and we don't see those individuals uh, trending upward in terms of, you know, uh, they're the ones that become the victim if they're armed and assaulted. Now, what about these situations with abusers? I mean, we might have laws on the books about requiring the removal of firearms from a household if there has been a domestic violence conviction. But, Becky, what's the process for actually removing that gun? Who who does that? That's a great question without a clear answer. So our law gives us the, again, the mirror of the federal law that we cannot allow those individuals convicted of a domestic violence crime to own or possess a firearm and those individuals with the order of protection against them. However, the process to actually remove and to pr prove that there's been a removal of that weapon is not laid out in law. And so that's something that we've worked on in Nashville. Our office helps convene a firearms dispossession task force to see what we can do under our current law to ensure that there is dispossession of the weapon. But I'll tell you, it's full of a number of different hurdles, legal hurdles, operational hurdles of who actually removes a weapon. And one of the biggest difficulties under our law is that we allow for what's called third-party dispossession. So that means that an individual who's no longer able to own a firearm can give their firearm to a friend or a family member, and that can count as their dispossession. But Tennessee is the only state in the country that doesn't ask any questions about that third party. We don't ask for the third party's name. We don't ask if that third party is legally able to possess a firearm themselves. And we don't ensure that that third party knows that they cannot give that firearm back to the individual. John, when we're talking about these situations with the abusers who have lost that right, do you, do you think there's room for improvement here? Well, I think there is, and in a number of areas. Uh, one is that I know there has been legislation that they are looking at concerning requiring the dispossession to be demonstrated in court by filing follow-up paperwork. Uh, I, I do agree that one of the options that's currently under the Tennessee statute is that it can be dispossessed to a third party 
Um, and that has worked okay as far as I know for a number of years. But there's another area that has to do with this question of that's increasingly now going to surface with the Bruin decision from the Supreme Court just last month as to whether the misdemeanor domestic violence laws that are in this country are of a nature that they themselves are unconstitutional to the extent that they generate or create a permanent lifetime ban, even if there are changes of circumstances down the road. So do you think that, so, so I'm just trying to make sure that I understand correctly. So as it stands, there are these situations where people, because they are abusers, because of the research about people who have that history, um, lose the right to carry a gun. Are, are you saying that you think that uh, that goes too far? I think there will be changes in the law because prior to the adoption of what's called the Lautenberg Amendment, which was a federal change that implemented the misdemeanor domestic violence laws, it wasn't uncommon, in uh, particularly in domestic matters, for there to be charges and claims of domestic violence, sometimes raised tactically in divorce proceedings. And at the time, before the adoption of the Lautenberg Act, or the amendment, those were viewed quite frequently as misdemeanors. They were frequently viewed as minor misdemeanors. And oftentimes they were not uh, challenged because at the time they did not have these prohibited person characteristics that would ban somebody for life. So what had happened is you have a situation where domestic violence convictions went down. They weren't challenged. They weren't fought. They were uh, treated relatively minor by the parties involved, including the courts. And then the scope of the law changed to make those permanent lifetime bans. And those permanent lifetime bans effectively were retroactively applied so that people who, some people, not all, who have domestic violence convictions, and these are misdemeanors typically, have these lifetime bans. And I do believe that Bruin is going to force the states to re-examine that issue. And there's good precedent for that because you can look at cases like Tyler and Binder Up where other aspects of federal gun laws that create lifetime bans have been challenged as unconstitutionally harsh. Becky, can you respond to that? I mean, I think that the lifetime ban is incredibly important. And to be clear, misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence involve all sorts of heinous acts of violence. So just because it's classified as a misdemeanor doesn't mean that the abuse isn't severe in misdemeanor domestic violence cases. And those are the cases where you see the dispossession applying is for those cases where harm is caused. So I think that in any kind of removal of a lifetime ban, we could see an impact in our field in helping the clients that we work with that that will increase the risk that they're at and increase the numbers of domestic violence homicides we see. We already currently see the majority of homicides in Nashville and across the state of Tennessee perpetrated with guns. And that's true for the rest of the country. So that would have an enormous impact 
on people who are experiencing abuse in their homes. When you go to a store to purchase a gun, they do background checks that would turn up things like these court-ordered restrictions. But things are different with private purchases. John, do we have any idea what portion of Tennessee's gun sales are handled privately? No, we don't. There's no data point tracking that. Do you think the rules about private sales are adequate to keep people safe? John? Yes. Becky, what do you think? Do you think the rules about private sales are adequate to keep safety in mind? Again, I think going back to the work that we do, it's really difficult to know that you need to remove a gun if you don't know that someone has a gun. So it's it's difficult to start from that point as well as to really ensure that they've had a thorough check to their background, that they don't have a current order of protection or a domestic violence misdemeanor conviction or even a felony conviction. So I think it's really important to have those safeguards, again, not only for the protection of the person experiencing the abuse in the home, but for the, the larger community. That's Becky Bullard with Nashville's Office of Family Safety. She was joined by John Harris from the Tennessee Firearms Association. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll dig more into the accessibility of guns in our city and state and how that plays into the gun violence we see every day. How are guns affecting your life? What are your thoughts on our gun laws and our access to these high-power weapons? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. This hour, we've been talking about guns. The laws on the books in Tennessee, on the whole, make it pretty easy to own a gun. As of a year ago, we are a permitless carry state. That's something local gun control advocates continue to push back against. Their latest demonstration was a rally outside of Governor Billy's office last month. It came on the heels of a pretty awful week. There had been a mass shooting in Chattanooga after the deadly tragedies in Buffalo and Uvalde. But these mass tragedies are far from the only cause for concern, especially when smaller incidents of gun violence are a daily reality for some communities. My next guests have a pretty good understanding of this. Sheila Calloway is a juvenile court judge here in Nashville, and Clemmy Greenlee is founder of Nashville Peacemakers, a grassroots organization that works to prevent violence. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. First of all, I would love to hear your thoughts on the conversation thus far, uh, Judge Calloway. You know, the conversation has been very interesting. Um, I sit on this um, panel from the perspective of when I see the devastation um, of what gun violence does to people's lives. Um, I hear countless cases um, where a child has been in possession of a gun um, and where that child may have used it against someone. And there is so much trauma, so much um, pain on for everybody that's involved. And so looking at the cases that I see in the over-proliferation of guns in our communities. It disheartens me that we don't have um, a better account of who has guns. It disheartens me that we do not have a system statewide on how we count, um, particularly private, pra- uh, private cells of guns, 
that there's no way to um, figure out who has the guns and they are getting in the hands of our youth, which is, um, to me, one of the things that our legislature should step up and make sure that they are, if you're going to allow people to have guns, there should be responsible gun ownership. Um, if that means that you have to keep your gun locked up at all times, unless you're using it for a good purpose, then that's what we need to do. Clemmy, what what's kind of bubbled up for you? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I definitely piggyback off of uh, the young lady who just left and Judge uh, Callaway. You know, I'm the mother of a murdered son. Uh, my son was murdered. My 18-year-old grand, uh, grandson was murdered. My 18-year-old nephew was murdered. So talking about gun violence to me is really beholding me that we're still here in 2022 talking about it, number one. My son was murdered in uh, 2003. My nephew and grandson was murdered 2014 and 15. And for me to still be sitting here seeing all of this violence coming around, uh, it makes me angry, makes me sad, uh, makes me want to protest the legislation. Uh, I got another word for BLE, and I'm going to save that. Uh, I kind of was hoping that he um, would answer some of my calls and meet me personally. Uh, I think everybody's showing up at his house. He was looking for that. He was waiting for it. He probably was sitting in the living room drinking some tea, you know, just listening to all the chant. Um, Getting guns, I was told by a 12-year-old, it's like getting a bag of potato chips. That hurt my feelings. Mm. Uh, I do know trying to keep a database on where the gun's coming from, the private sector and all that, it's really hard because one set of youths told me that at the gun shows, you know, all they do is go take $5,000 to one of the owners that's not owners, but one of the gun owners that's going in there to buy another gun collection. And they just get them the $5,000 with a list of guns to get for them. So, you know, and that, that's something I want to get to in just a moment. I should mention, too, you were recently at the White House. So mm-hmm. congratulations Thank you. on that recognition. <laughs> Thank you. And you were there for the signing of the Safer Communities Act, mm-hmm. which attempts to make it harder to legally purchase a gun when you've got so-called red flag for yes. one reason or another. But laws aside, what I'm hearing from you, it's it's pretty easy to just get a gun. It is. Um, you know, I, I, uh, my grandson is 20 now, and so I called him and a couple of his fellows over because they the one kind of educate me and keep me on how all y'all have one, you know, how these 12, 14-year-olds have one. Right. And then I'm asking, how is all of these cars, and I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Judge Calloway because I know you got to be angry with this because half of your kids coming in is because they got a stolen gun out of a car. But if when you first announced about these guns in these unlocked cars, you would think that by now these cars would know about it. So I'm thinking something needs to be done about the car owners. It's like you're deliberately leaving these guns in the car. And we've been talking about this for two years, about the guns being stolen. So I feel like when the car gets stolen with the gun in it, the car owner needs to be charged with that gun, not that youth. Of course he's going to get it when he see it. And that's another segment you might need to come back and talk about. But, uh, you know, it's a lot out there that, that 
can point fang- people that can point fingers and blame game, and it's still not happen- ha- happening fast enough for me. And when I get a phone call Friday, and that was three murders in one day, mm-hmm. that was enough for me right there. Mm-hmm. To know that we have to come up with a better plan, a better strategic plan. And I think it have to come away from the legislation, the governor's office, and it's got to get back out here to the community. Well, you talked about the easy access, about these guns that are stolen from cars, that that, that it's easier than as easy as a bag of chips for a for a teenager, mm-hmm. for a kid to buy one. Sheila, in your courtroom, how do you see that easy access impacting young people? It it has so much impact on our young people. And what we have to recognize is that our youth, and and this is the the brain science, no one's minds fully develop until they're about 25, right? And so what you have is, as Clemmy said, is you have youth who are going to a parking lot and see a gun in a car. And all they do is try the handle. And the handle is unlocked. And so they pick up a gun and that youth has absolutely no business having a gun, has does not have the capacity to understand the true depths of the consequences of what happens if they pull the trigger and they absolutely kill someone. They don't understand when they take that gun that that is a possibility, that they can change the lives of whoever it is that they shoot. They could change their lives forever. Mm-hmm. They don't have the brain capacity to understand that. And so what I see in the courtroom is a youth and their youth families who are devastated, mm-hmm. devastated by what they've done, devastated by what the consequences that they're facing. And then you see the oh. family of the of the of the victim who are also devastated. All of it could have been changed had we not had a gun in an unlocked car. Mm-hmm. And I understand that people who believe in, you know, the automatic gun rights and that we shouldn't say anything or do anything and that we shouldn't blame the victims. I understand what they're saying, but it doesn't take that much to simply lock your gun in a safe place so that a youth a person who doesn't understand the consequences of their behaviors, that they don't put themselves in that type of situation. Mm. I know it's complex, but Clemmie, do you feel, do you think these feel, kids feel like they need guns? For protection. Some of them yeah. are being bullied. Some of them are feeling like uh, the only way they could go get the things they need, they have to pick up a gun to go get it. Because poverty, gentrification has stagnated us out here. That's got a whole lot to do with it. Nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, I had one young boy told me the reason he picked up a gun and robbed somebody because he needed medicine for his grandmother who's dying of cancer. I had one person say they were tired of eating bologna every night. I had one person who said they were tired of going to school with the same shoe on for the last two years. So we, until we started like getting off into the homes to kind of see what's going on, well, we can help. Not saying that's an excuse to pick up no, no gun. I'm not saying, let me clear that. But these are the these are the answers that I'm getting that I think if we kind of dive a little deeper into what is really going on, it ain't like um, we, we not touching base on half of the videos. 
See, I've got a lot of kids telling me about playing these videos and how important it is for them now to see how it really feel in real life. Because like all music they do, videos, movies, yeah, or those, video games. Those video games. Video I'm games. sorry, okay. the video games of all that shooting and killing that they got going on. And I'm thinking that sometime we need to touch those people who's marketing those videos. Now, we, I don't know what year it was, but we had a, a former NFL uh, guy. He was a white guy that killed his wife. And he got on TV. It was one of the talk shows, and y'all can look that up. And he said the reason he shot his wife is because he was programmed playing the video games and he wanted to see what he felt like for real. I do believe a high rate of this gun shooting and, and murder rate got to do a lot with these video games. I do believe it's a lot to do with uh, poverty, gentrification, watching all this development coming here and, not, and we, don't, we are not a part of it. I yeah. also believe it's a whole lot of lack of education in the homes about talking to your kid and your grandkids about these guns. Well, and it's not just kids, right? I mean, what would you say to people who want to protect themselves, whether it's in their own neighborhood or, you know, really anywhere? Well, I, I'll say to, I do believe in the Second Amendment. Because I know everybody don't want to get a gun just to do crazy stuff, violent stuff. I say to those who have guns in their home to protect themselves, uh, crudos. But I say to you on the negative part, if you just have them laying around, like a lot of these kids, and she can attest to this, a lot of these kids that got caught in school with the guns in their backpack, they got it off the dresser. They got it off the kitchen table. They got it off the big headboard. So if you're going to have it, lock it up. A lot of those kids, three, two, and five years old, that have shot themselves in the chest and in the head, they got that gun out of their mama purse. Right. They got that gun off the couch. So I'm not saying you don't have a right to have a gun in your home to protect yourself. I mean, I don't. But I don't see why you would have it laying out. Lock it up. Right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona. We're talking about guns and gun violence in our communities. My guests are Clemmie Greenlee from Nashville Peacemakers and juvenile judge Sheila Calloway. One reason for getting a gun that we hear again and again is to feel protected. Uh, Sheila, in your experience, how does that actually play out when things get heated and both people have guns? You know, and that happens frequently, unfortunately, um, you know, back in the day when I was younger, and I'm not going to tell my age, but when things got heated and people got upset, it was a physical fight. Nowadays, it's a fight with guns. It's like you're living in the wild, wild west in the modern urban communities, mm -hmm. and it doesn't work. There are, you know, I, one of the most heartbreaking cases I had to hear was literally a gunfight in a neighborhood where a stray bullet hit a young girl. And, you know, that breaks your heart um, It when the particularly when it is um, youth who are involved, when they are unable to deescalate by themselves without proper um, understanding of conflict resolution and making sure that they understand how to behave when they're angry with one another. When they have access to a gun and they just pull that gun out and they're angry and they shoot without much thought beyond that, it literally devastates the whole community. Clemmie, you know, you work in violence interruption. What would you say is a better solution to that 
problem of feeling vulnerable and needing protection? I mean, more education in school, more programs in the community, more in-house uh, connection with people. Walk up on people just standing out there. Talk to them. You know, it's it's a heated argument in every situation, but it's also a de-escalation in all those situations. If, they, if you really know how to get out there and talk to them. You know, I said one thing real quick. The, the people that's doing the mass shooting, see, that's taken off, that's taken away from this deal, this one-on-one client. But to me, the ones who are doing the mass shooting, they mesmerized all their moms and dad gun collections. They also talked about the guns all the time and nobody paid no attention to them. They didn't no more need more mental health issues than my people that shooting one-on-one have. So if they hadn't had military white rap weapons for them, then we wouldn't have been able to shoot uh, 90 to 100 people at one time. So until we talk about that military weapons coming through here, that has now dropped into our community. We did not have those. We was already dodging for 357s and 38s and Glocks. Now we dodging for we pull one trigger and you shooting 100 people before we can holler help. So I, I think it's a whole lot that's going on, not only in the black and brown houses and communities, but in, in the middle class and the, and the high class elite communities. Everybody needs to come back to the table. Everybody. And, and we do see gun violence of one sort or not another in all kinds mm-hmm. of communities, whatever whatever kind of stereotypes get people in people's heads that doesn't exactly really line up with the numbers. You know, speaking of numbers and availability of guns, some people say that we're past that point of no return when it comes to how easy it is to get guns and that there's so many just on the streets that at this point you can pass all the laws you want, but it really won't make much of an impact. Do you think that argument holds water? You know, I do not think that argument holds water. Sometimes... um that that's kind of like one of those arguments of of people who don't have hope anymore and don't have hope in our systems. I think that we do have the ability to remove guns if we are um, if we are more willing to to recognize who needs guns and who doesn't. Um, I, again, for me, looking at the youth, none of our youth needs guns. They, they do not. There, there's not a law, although I think our legislature at one point was looking at lowering the age of gun possession. Uh, that that bill was did not pass. Uh, but, you know, there are ways that we can remove guns from people and there are ways that we can do it safely. And there are ways that we can do it in a fair manner that those who need it and can show absolute a good reason why they should have it, that they can keep possessions. Um, you know, I think we misinterpret a lot what the Second Amendment really says. And I, I don't know if our um, the people who wrote the Second Amendment um, really were looking at the way that the nation is today. They could not have been. And it was not the way that it was meant, as as Clemmy just said, you know, where, where um, you have people, individuals um, possessing guns that are only for military use. Um, that was not the original intent. And for people to say that that was, um, I think is disingenuous. Clemmy, I know your group has had difficulty getting adequate funding and you've lost your office because you couldn't pay rent. What does that tell us about the city's understanding of the value of your work. That's easy. <laughs> it tells me that uh, they don't want to give money to those who they know will shut the city down and work with the community. 
because I've been out here for 20 years and I've applied for so many grants. And instead of them feel like I don't have the right adequate information, budget or uh, curriculum or whatever, nobody's never asked. And I have all of that. Uh, I know for a fact for what I've done with no money, what I could do with money. Uh, I still have my own program, and I still take kids through my program, and I can bring all of them back. And I can say out of the 30 that I've done in the last two months, it might be, might be five that went backwards. And that's because I done ran too low of funds that I can't continue doing what I was doing after the program finished. See, this is where we mess up at. I'm not a program from eight to four. I'm not an after-school program. I'm a program that wants to be a helper. See, everything is closed at 7 and 8 o'clock. Everything is closed at 9 or 10 o'clock. So there's nowhere for those kids to go or the parents. I get so many phone calls at 10 after 10 and 10 after 12. This is what I want to do. I want to stay open at late. I, I love hanging out. I'm bored. So I want to do this program. I want to keep them youth and them parents involved. And what we do, is, as Sheila was touching on it back in her days, how we used to fight, you know, fist fight, and black eye and come back and talk, all we got to do is repeat history. Bring some of these programs that we used to have. Bring them back. And this is what I want to do. And so, yeah, I'm asking. I asked um, the mayor and the governor to give me $50,000 in 90 days and move out of my way. All right. I asked Chief Drake, let me get a uh, conversation with him and the community and the police department, and let me show you what I can do. Clemmie Greenlee is a violence interrupter and the founder of Nashville Peacemakers. Sheila Calloway is a juvenile court judge here in Davidson County. Thank you both for being here today. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow's show is all about native plant conservation. Plus, we're going on a wild goose chase for wild ginseng in Middle Tennessee. You won't want to miss it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Lemley, and Paige Flager. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.